This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. This is a music theater on Author Talk. It's called The Perfect Game. Jim Naismith invents basketball. And the playwright, the songwriter, John Grismer, joins us now. Hello, John. Steve, hello. Now, this is a little different, uh, very different, unique than uh, most that we do on this show. We're talking about The Perfect Game, which is... <laughs> A music theater, about a two-hour uh, event, uh, two acts, uh, act one, act two, and it's about the beginnings of basketball as well as it kind of has a contemporary side to it, right? I mean, there's a, there's a two, two uh, plots going on here. Two plots going on is a good trick when it comes to making a musical because in one story, you alternate between stories, so... The singers work on one story, and then there's a break, and you can go into the other story, giving the singers a break for their voices. My voice, by the way, is not normal because I'm I've strained it recently. I think doing a lot of PR for this uh, for this product. <laughs> but so, if you'll just uh, you know excuse the strain. Sure, no problem, John. Okay, okay. Um, so yeah, two stories. One in 1891, <clears throat> when Jim Naismith uh, teaches at the Springfield YMCA school, he's teaching graduate school uh, students there, and the head of the school, who's named Dr. Gulick, has had a theory for a while that they need to invent a new game for the winter months, as he as he says, when winter winds blow at our doors, we need a game for hardwood floors lit with gas or electric light, a game for dark December nights. Spoken like a true songwriter. They need they need a game. And guess what the title of that song is? So, uh, you know, it's very direct. So Dr. Gulick assigns James Naismith the job, and he gives him two weeks to come up with this new game. This is all true. Back in 1891. 1891, yeah. So, so is football around then? Oh, sure. So football is his, already popular and something to do in the fall. A, yes, his good friend at the school was a football coach uh, and, and was going to be a famous football coach. And probably, certainly, baseball's around for the spring. Oh, of course, yeah. And Jim Naismith was an all-around athlete. He, uh, he came down from Canada, and uh, he, he uh, believed in, in the value of athletics in developing character in young men. He eventually also became a, a minister of the gospel. So he was, he was a doc of, uh, of theology and a doctor, and later on became an MD doctor. So he was, he was quite, he had quite a range, you could say. And he loved teaching. He loved the young people. And uh, part part of what he taught when he, when he was at the University of Kansas, he counseled uh, students in what we would today call sex education. Uh, I think they had another more euphemistic name for it then. But but in reality, that's what he did. So he's an interesting guy. 
uh, and I was drawn to him as a character. So, now, now, you know, and, and it was basket ball. Ball. I mean, there was two separate <laughs> words there. <laughs> well, we, there's a song in the show <clears throat> in which his students discuss what should they call the game. Right. And one of them comes up and says, we should call it Naismith Ball. <laughs> and Jim says, no way. It doesn't, doesn't have much of a ring to it, does it? He doesn't say no way. No, yeah. but, but he says, no, no to that, definitely. And so then they come up with the idea, we have a basket and we have a ball. Let's call it basketball. And, and wouldn't you know it, they sing a song about it. Yeah, I just can't imagine. Can't imagine. Just kind of breaking the song, right? <laughs> yep. So Jim Naismith is introduced to us in the first scene because we're at the home team arena and we're with the broadcasters who are getting ready to broadcast the game. And um, Jim Naismith pops up uh, out of the past, and he doesn't know how to explain it, but it has something to do with electrons, he, he believes. Somehow his electrons have gotten mixed up in the present day, and he's mystified as as they are, and uh, he's they all sing a song about electrons being the craziest matter. Uh, you just can't predict what they're going to do. And Dr. Heisenberg in Germany came up with a theory about electrons. How how they were totally unpredictable. So in the Today Story. Yes. In the Today Story, we've got two contemporary mm-hmm. basketball coaches who are, I guess, uh, pulling together to coach against the arch rival? That's correct. Uh, Jim meets, uh, after we meet him, he meets Coach Nancy. Coach Nancy becomes his <clears throat> student, a friend. Uh, he becomes a mentor to her. Coach Nancy has her own problems. She resigned from teaching the or coaching the women's team. Uh, last year after something bad happened to her uh, in the final game. And we're going to find out what that is later. And, of and, course, Frank, is, uh, <clears throat> is he the, he's the current men's coach. Frank is the assistant coach who takes over the men's team because the, the regular coach has a heart attack. So Frank is under a lot of stress. And while he's under this stress, he meets, he meets Nancy. And that doesn't help him in terms of stress, but he gets a different kind of stress because he immediately, as we do in musicals, he immediately falls in love with her. So, and I'll bet sings the song. And uh, eventually they do. <laughs> and they eventually they do. <clears throat> eventually they do while they're coaching the big game against the arch rivals. Of course, the they arch coach a, a, a song called "Steal the Ball." Steal the ball. So we're we're getting the idea of, of this now, right? <laughs> of what we're dealing with. And then you're also having to deal with, as you call him, the weasel coach. The weasel coach of of the arch rivals, Coach Roach. And Coach Roach addresses the audience, and he says, yes, my name is Coach Roach. Get used to it. (laughs) Alvin Roach. Alvin Roach. So anyway, we're bouncing back and forth between the two stories. We go back in time, and we deal with Jim's marriage. Uh, to his wife, Maud. He, we deal with the time he met her, and they sing a love song together, and so on. So uh, we have a little bit of the backstory, the historical story, and then we come back to the uh, the present day. So uh, it reminds me a bit of of a play that has been a heavy influence on me, and that's Our Town. I've, dra- I've acted in it. I've directed it a few times. 
uh, our town is a wonderful structure because you you can be anywhere, do anything. Uh, you can be anywhere in time, and uh, that's how it works. Every everyone has seen our town. So if you just think of an our town uh, type of an approach with music thrown in, you've, you've got a pretty uh, uh, accurate representation of, of uh, the perfect game. Now, who would you say the audience is for for your book? The audience for this <clears throat> script is would be directors who direct musical theater, producers who produce it, faculty members in high schools, colleges, professional. And at the end of the day, as they say, I believe that this this play, this musical play, has a future as a film play, as a screenplay. It, it would lend itself very, very strongly, I believe, to, uh, to to being filmed. How many songs are in it? We have, let's see, on our disc, we have a f- 15 cuts. So 15 is the number. Uh, now, this has already been performed, hasn't it? It's been performed twice at uh, <clears throat> two university theaters. One, Xavier University in Cincinnati where I've done some directing and some consulting. And secondly, at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., at the theater department of Catholic University. Uh, the first production was rough. I, I had to learn what I needed to do to, to fix things. Uh, the second production, the fixes had been made, and it became a very successful show at Catholic University. And it was a thrill to to be in the audience and feel them uh, responding to it. Now, you also have a way for people to, uh, uh, if they're interested in producing or directing this, uh, how do they contact you? What's the best way to do this? The best way to do it, I'm an old-fashioned guy, so the old the, the best way is to call me up. and uh, you, can, you can give out my number if you want to. But, but, of course, we have a website also. Good. Uh, Give us that. The website is Perfect Game Musical. All those letters jammed together. Right. Perfectgamemusical.com. And there you will find stories uh, about the uh, the production, and there you will be able to download, they tell me, uh, the songs. They're on the end. You can, have, you can go to Amazon.com from there and uh, read some reviews. And order the book if you want to. And, and you're also on Facebook. I just I found that out last night that uh, there is a Facebook uh, site for the perfect game. They call it uh, the perfect game, a John Grismer classic. And it was set up by a, a woman named Kristen who was in the cast at Catholic University. And it's a charming uh, site. Uh, gives a description of the show. So those of you who are, who are in Facebook and members can uh, look it up there. I find it extremely interesting that on the very first basketball game, give us the score. That's easy. The score was one to nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and the basket, of course, the basket, uh, once the ball was in the basket, there had to be a man climb up on a ladder. <laughs> and get it out. And get the, get the ball out of the peach basket. Isn't that something? But the shot was what we would to get today call a three-pointer ah. with an arch on it. And uh, 
So, right. so who in in the musical there has to be a star basketball player? Well, <clears throat> the the team is the star, really. Right. It's, okay, it's, it's about teamwork. Um, so anyway, it's uh, I'll tell you one quick story. When uh, it was first done at Xavier, my wife was with me there, so intermission came around, and I told her, I said, "Listen up to see what people are saying." You know, that's what you do. The intermission. She went in the ladies' room, and she came out, and she was very happy. She was smiling. I, she says, "I heard them using the c word," and I said, "What do you mean the c word?" She said, "Charming." So, there, you, there you go. I was happy to hear that. That's exactly right. That's happy exactly to hear that. right. So we found out in that first production that people like the story. They like the characters. Um, they like what happens to them. So. Uh, we we had to sharpen up the music a little bit. I I started working with a very fine arranger named Russ Kassoff, and uh, he continues to be my arranger. And uh, he shaped up the music very very well, so that when it came time to do the show at Catholic University, the music was right on. I had a very good musical director there named Dominic Trano. Dominic liked the show, and uh, he. He was excellent at his job. So I was very, very pleased at the production at Catholic U. Is Jim Naismith the inventor of the dribble? Yes. There's a song in it called, you guess. <laughs> the dribble. <laughs> He's describing it to Maud. Okay. Telling her about the dribble. And Maud tries to learn the dribble. And it's it's one of those cute, uh, you know, where they meet cute. It's where you where they uh, first encounter each other. Because Maud has come by to the gym to see if, she, if uh, uh, some of the, her women friends can play basketball. And this really happened. Uh, Maud and her friends used to come and sit in the balcony and watch the early games of basketball. And they decided they wanted to play basketball, too. So. And we also, looks like, have a song called Ten Feet Off the Floor. Somebody Ten had to decide that as well. You know? he's, he's been searching for this game, searching for this perfect game, and finally he gets the idea of nailing these, these baskets, these peach baskets, up to the rail ten feet off the floor. That's what he sings about. This could be the game I've been searching for. And back then, what was the ball made out of? I believe it was a soccer ball Okay. that they started with. And the game uh, immediately became popular. And the students who were from different parts of the country went home on Christmas break and, in effect, introduced the, the game uh, at, at, into their home areas. The game swept the country, and then it swept the world. Well, it's certainly very more than very popular today at all kinds of levels from the little peewee leagues to obviously the nba <clears throat> he has discussions with nancy uh, about this and he's not sure he likes the idea of big money being involved in basketball and nancy says there's nothing wrong with money you can do a lot of good with money so they <laughs> they kind of go at each other from opposite sides they talk it over and he, we get into him, him uh, having a, a, a mentor relationship with Fog Allen, the famous coach of Kansas, when Jim Naismith was the athletic director at Kansas. 
and Jim Naismith and Fog Allen had different philosophies of basketball. Um, I can go into that if you want to hear about it. it. It's basically that Naismith said you just throw the ball out there and play for the exercise. Fog Allen, on the other hand, thought that you could devise plays and you could coach. Well, the the the, the Fog Allen type of coach is the one uh, that we recognize today. Right. Not so much the Na- the Naismith coach. Well, John, tell us again uh, about your website. Give us the name of your website again. The website is perfectgamemusical.com. And we can also uh, order your musical play through Author House as well as other online retailers, I'm yes, sure. Yes, you could, you could, off, you could uh, order it at Author House or, or at any bookstore. They can bring it in for you or at Amazon. Well, we appreciate you being on Author Talk, John. Thank it you. Has, it has been a pleasure, Steve, and uh, a, a very uh, a very happy event for me. I'm always glad to talk about The Perfect Game. And that's the title of this musical play, The Perfect Game. Jim Naismith invents basketball, and the playwright-songwriter is John Grismer. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. It's the chance for you to hear firsthand from authors on why they write their books in their own words. It's called iUniverse Radio, hosted by Steve Jorgensen every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio, every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. Sending a heartfelt message is one of the best ways to touch someone, to touch the heart. But it's easy to forget birthdays, anniversaries, and other special occasions. Imagine how many lives you would touch if it was easy to send those heartfelt messages. Send Out Cards provides a way for you to send a personalized greeting card to a friend, loved one, or business associate in less than 60 seconds from the convenience of your computer. You can even add a gift or gift card. Send Out Cards is about helping people reach out to those around them. It's amazing what a simple message can do. Send Out Cards helps you act on your promptings to reach out and change lives. Show host Michelle Bateman has learned through personal experience what it means to be an eagle by always working to be your best self. Please join our conversation on Send Out Cards Radio with Michelle Bateman to learn what it means to be an eagle on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Midnight Special. A novel about lead belly. And the authors are Edmund G. Adio and Richard M. Garvin. And Edmund joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Ed. Hi, how are you, Steve? Well, good to have you with us. And we're going to talk about this legendary uh, music composer and uh, artist, Lead Belly. And in more of a, what you call a biographical novel. Right. Now, how did this all come about? Well, it started with um, Dick Garvin and I had written a few other books uh, earlier, 
And he was a musician and uh, had mentioned the story of Lead Belly to me, uh, who is a, uh, a legendary folk guitarist. He called himself the king of the 12-string guitars. And he, uh, the story that Dick originally told to me was so fascinating about this guy, this wild, crazy, knife-wielding, murderous uh, genius. I said, uh, let's write a novel about this, about this guy. So he and I decided to write a book about uh, a fictionalized version of Lead Belly's life. And when did that start? That was back in 1968, 68 and 9. We took a year off to research Lead Belly's life down in the uh, Louisiana and East Texas areas, the prisons, the courthouses, the jails, the, the ghettos, and the, the body sections of Shreveport. And then we... Uh, took a year after that and sat down and wrote the novel. The book was published uh, in New York by uh, Bernard Geis Associates, which was a high-flying publisher at the time. He had published Valley of the Dolls and a lot of great bestsellers. So uh, we were quite thrilled because, you know, a major publisher was, had published the book, and we were sure it was going to be a bestseller. And uh, we were very excited. It sold out its first printing, we got great reviews, New York Times, all the major newspapers all around the country. I was on a Today Show and a couple of major TV shows. And then uh, uh, the publisher filed a Chapter 11. The book was uh, stillborn, so uh, no one else would do any business with Geis, and no one would have anything to do with the book. So it kind of laid there for all these years, and then uh, through the miracle of digital publishing... I decided to uh, republish the book, give it a new edition, rewrite it a little bit, and uh, give it a second chance at life. And here we are. Your opening chapter uh, just really draws you in. It's a poetic imagery. I just felt like I was right there at the birth of Lead Belly. I mean, you, you just painted pictures in a way. Uh, you're a very, very good writer. Thank you. Thank you. I've had a lot of compliments on uh, the... the vividness of the read and the uh, I think the Cleveland press called it stark realism so I agree uh, right I'm very happy with the way it turned out so here he is lead belly born in a very obviously very poor circumstances just poverty in the in in the backwoods I guess right yeah in the cage of Louisiana back, the backwater swamplands of uh, northern Louisiana Cajun territory so how did his music career start? It started when uh, he was a young man, a young boy. His uncle, he had an uncle who played uh, what they called a wind jammer. It was a little concertina-type device. And he taught uh, young Hootie Ledbetter to, uh, to play it. And then uh, he bought him a, a cheap guitar. He taught, uh, we'll call him Leadbelly. Although at the time he was just a young kid named Hootie. He didn't get named Lead Belly until later on. But I'll refer to him as Lead Belly. Uh, he taught young Lead Belly to uh, play the guitar and he got to be quite proficient at it. And he was in demand to play at uh, barn dances on the weekends and things like that. And as he grew up into his teens, uh, he became quite popular as a, as a musician and was in uh, great demand, became a very, very proficient musician and singer. And he made up his own songs, and uh, of course all the women loved him, and uh, he learned how to drink, and 
that's where all his problems began. And, of course, this is thrust right in the reality of the racial prejudice in the early 1900s, the, the Southern justice system. Oh, yeah. He, uh, he got into trouble a lot. He carried a, a gun, kind of like a Saturday night special, uh, we'd call it today. And he carried a knife, and he got into a lot of trouble. He got into a lot of knifings, shootings and things. And a black man in those days uh, with the white man controlling the justice system and the penal system, a black man just didn't have a chance. In those days, you were guilty until proven innocent. And uh, Leadbelly uh, spent a major part of his whole entire life uh, behind bars. And I guess he was uh, convicted for murder. He was convicted for murder twice, once in Texas. They say that the count is, uh, there's no uh, verifiable total, but some people say he killed 13 people in his life. Uh, We could account for only about six. So that's part of that folklore, I guess, huh? Yeah, yeah. But he killed a guy in Texas, got sent up for life in uh, Sugarland, which was a notorious prison in uh, near Huntsville, Texas. After uh, 10 or 12 years, I think it was, he sang a song for the governor of Texas, and the governor, on the basis of him singing the song and playing his 12-string guitar, the governor gave him a full pardon. He got pardoned from a lifetime sentence for murder. And then later on, several years later, killed a man in Louisiana and got sent up for life and got sent to Angola Prison near Shreveport, which at the time was the most notorious uh, prison in the country. Some people tell me it still is. And uh, later on, after several years at Angola, believe it or not, he sang a song for the governor of Louisiana and got a second pardon. Oh, my goodness. He actually got pardoned twice in two different states by singing for the governor from a life sentence for murder. Actually, absolutely incredible. So let's it's, a testament, it's a testament to his musical ability and his persuasiveness. Oh, exactly. His, songs. his charisma. And his charisma. He'd make up a song and throw the governor's name into it. And uh, I got the lyrics of the song in the, in the book. And it's interesting to see how he uh, made up a song for that specific governor, used that governor's name, used his own uh, particular circumstance, and was so convincing and so uh, musically touching that he got a pardon from a life sentence for murder. It's mind-boggling. You say that Leadbelly survived both the prison gangs and the bewildering silverware society of the New England suburbs by constantly recreating himself. Uh, explain what you mean by that. Uh, when he got um, he joined up after his pardon in Louisiana, he joined up with a uh, folklorist named John Lomax, who was collecting. Uh, recordings of what they call Negro folk songs in those days uh, in, the, in the prisons of the South. And he uh, hired Leadbelly to be his driver and chauffeur and sort of Man Friday who uh, would get him into these prisons and introduce him to a lot of the prisoners, musical prisoners, and convince the prisoners to play their songs for Lomax, who had one of the earliest uh, wire recorders and was recording all these uh, folk songs for the Library of Congress. Well, on the way up 
the East Coast uh, on the way to New York, uh, Lomax got the idea that he would uh, kind of show Lead Belly off, make, make Lead Belly a, an attraction, a musical attraction. And Lead Belly, here this crude, uh, uneducated, violent criminal who happened to be a uh, musical genius on a 12-string guitar, would sing in uh, colleges and uh, social gatherings for uh, at Lomax's behest. And uh, one of the tragic things is that Lomax, at, a, at Bryn Mawr, a woman's college in those days, Lomax would actually have Lead Belly wear prison stripes as he sang for these uh, shocked college women. And Lead Belly was quite embarrassed by the whole thing. He was, after all, a, a sensitive, sensitive person. And so this uh, high society, this silver-plated society in New York and Connecticut was uh, exposed to this violent, crude phenomenon and uh, that the clash between the two cultures was uh, ultimately destructive to Lead Belly. Now, there were some great challenges in, in writing your book. Talk about some of those. Well, one of the challenges, uh, the first challenge right off, and i got to be careful here because of the political correctness of it all, but uh, they called each other nigger down south. Uh, the black people did, and of course the white people did it also in those days. So my problem with the, especially this new edition of the book was how to treat that, whether to say, you know, in the written word, I was trying to reproduce how they actually spoke in those days. I didn't want to make Lead Belly sound like he had a Ph.D. degree in English literature. But then again, I didn't want him to sound like Step and Fetch it, you know. I was grinding down the road to get that old devil. So, uh, But there is a black dialect that you were trying it, to be accurate. Yeah, it's a special... Uh, Louisiana Cajun Patois, and I, uh, so I decided to use nigger, N-I-G-G-A, instead of the word nigger or nigra, that a lot of people said. So in the book, uh, that word is used a lot in dialogue, because that's simply the way they spoke, and I, I had to be true to the dialect, the dialect at the time. Um, I was complimented by the New York Times, who said uh, Dick and I were, who said something like, uh, it was remarkable how uh, two northern white boys could capture the dialect of the uh, deep south black community or something like that. So I'm kind of happy with the way uh, the dialogue comes off in the book. And you also say you had a challenge in trying to be judicious in the use of profanity. Yeah, uh, uh, it goes without saying that uh, the language they used was uh, would would make a drunken sailor look like a Catholic priest. But at you know we can't really reproduce the way they actually talked. So uh, using words like bastard and son of a bitch and things like that, uh, and among other worse words. We had to be very, very judicious in how we used it, even in dialogue. We didn't want it to come off as uh, gratuitous profanity. But yet again, uh, we had to, had to capture the, the tone of how they spoke to each other. So 
So that was a, a major decision we had to make there. And, uh, of course, the sexual violence against women, uh, any author will tell you writing a sex scene is very, very uncomfortable and awkward. And Led Belly had uh, his sexual violence against women was uh, very much a part of his life as, as, as much as his mu music was. So we had to be very, very careful about how we treated the, the sexual aspects of, of his life also. So we were kind of treading a fine line in those three categories as we wrote the book, and I, I hope we pulled it off to and at everybody's the, satisfaction. And at the same time, you say that Leadbelly uh, is a sensitive victim of his environment. He, I mean, he, he, he had that unique side to him. He was. He, he was sensitive to... He had some education. He went to, uh, oh, I guess grammar school and maybe to the fifth grade or something like that. And he was, um, he knew intuitively how the white man treated the black man. And, you know, he had emotions like all of us do. And he was sensitive to people getting hurt. He wrote a song called uh, Pretty Little Girl with the Red Dress On, which he composed after seeing a blind girl on a corner in Shreveport begging for money, and he sat down on the corner with her on the curb and played music to attract people to put money in her cup. Now, that's, that's a sensitive person, but he got arrested for doing it. The sheriff in Shreveport caught him doing it and threw him in jail because it was illegal for a black man to beg on the streets. And he was just trying to help this poor little girl get some coins for food, and she was blind. <laughs> so uh, when he got to New York, he was terribly embarrassed by the way Lomax was treating him. He got the sense that he was a, uh, a trained monkey, you know, a man Friday, uh, wasn't even allowed to keep the money he earned. Lomax kind of doled it out to him, dibs and dabs. And so there was a, a revolt. He finally uh, uh, separated from Lomax, got into a lot of arguments with fellow black musicians, notably Josh White in Greenwich Village, who accused him of being an Uncle Tom and toadying to the white man. And Leadbelly, yeah, they had a, a famous argument in the Village Voice, the, not the Village Voice, uh, the bar, the Village Vanguard, where... Uh, they argued back and forth about Lead Belly you know, doing what the white man wanted him to do and playing the white man's songs versus uh, not doing it. And Lead Belly's argument was, hey, I've got to make a, a living here. That's what they want to hear. That's what I'll play. And that hurt him deeply because his own, his own uh, race, his own fellow black musicians kind of resented the way he was, the way he was uh, performing. So in that sense, yeah, his sensitivity was part of his downfall. Well, Ed, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get the book at uh, any any bookstore will order it for you. We're having trouble getting bookstores to carry it because it's independently published. But any bookstore will order it. You can get it through Amazon.com, or you can get it directly from the publisher, which is uh, AuthorHouse.com. 
and uh, let's see. Well, the usual outlets. Um, right, all the online retail outlets you can order. Any online retail outlet, uh, as I say, your local bookstore will might not carry it, but they'll order it for you. Well, Ed, thanks you. Thank you very much for being on Author Talk. Fascinating story, and and uh, this sounds like uh, it's a kind of uh, work that will take you places that you never imagined, right? Well, I hope so. I hope uh, people get it. It's uh, it's reaching a second, a brand new second audience, and I hope the latest generation enjoys it as much as the previous generation apparently did. That was Edmund G. Adio. He is the author, along with Richard M. Garvin, of The Midnight Special, a novel about lead belly. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. The American Rock and Roll So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, How Much Does God Cost? And the author is Kay Quinn. And Kay joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Kay. Hi there, Steve. How are you? Well, I'm doing great, and great to have you on the show. I'm going to read some of your thoughts about this issue, about this question, how much does God cost? You say, so just how many seminars, conferences, books, tapes, workshops, and other so-called church functions are necessary to have a spiritually fulfilling walk with God? How much more will unsuspecting saints have to pay to obtain their so-called closer walk with God? 
It's never-ending. Just how much does God cost? I guess that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? it? It actually does, because, you know, it's one seminar after another, and as soon as you come out of this conference, they're promoting another one. And all people are really wanting to do is have a relationship with God, and it seemingly they have to pay, you know, and, and go here and there, and they're missing the whole point of the intimacy with God. So why did you write the book? What prompted it? Uh, what was the motivation, some event, or just something that evolved within you? Yeah, something really did evolve within me when I, uh, when I would keep seeing hurting people, and, and they're crying out to God. They want to be close to God, and you have ministers or pretending to be ministers in the pulpit, and they see the hurting people, and they're constantly taking advantage of them. They're constantly uh, making them go into their pockets and saying, this is how you get to God, you know, and you've got to show him with your, your soul of seed, you know, and this is how you show God that you trust him, or this is how you get God to move on your behalf. And, uh, and they're hurting people, so they'll do it because they don't know what else to do when all they really have to do is just um, get, get close to God by themselves alone, get intimate with God. It, it doesn't cost anything, and that's why I wrote, how much does it cost? Because I want people to understand you don't have to go into your pockets to have a relationship with your Father. Now, you start off introducing your book with a question, do you prefer one lump or two? <laughs> <laughs> Explain that question and the answer to that question. One lump or two. Typically, that's referred to when uh, you want a cup of coffee or or any beverage, and it, it's a sweetener. You know, it's sugar. So, and when I talk about truth, I talk about raw truth. And a lot of people don't uh, they don't like it in its raw form. They have to have a little sweeteners added to it. So that's why I ask. So, would you prefer one lump or two? Because truth in its raw state, Steve, uh, it isn't very tasteful. Well, a lot and of, sometimes, Steve, it even hurts. <laughs> right, yeah, it pierces right to the center, doesn't exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. We feel like we sometimes take an arrow right into our heart. So what truth. we have going on now, instead of giving the raw truth, what you have coming behind the pulpit are the lumps, the sweeteners, the fluff, the flummery. So that's a way a minister can be appealing. Exactly, because... If you actually study the Word of God, when Jesus taught it, he said, you're going to be hated. You're going to be, you know, and a lot of his disciples were hated. They were crucified. They were killed. They were hung upside down for telling that raw truth. They don't like it. So I just wonder, how is it now that we have all of these sermons that make you feel so good when Jesus said, you're going to be hated? Now, you talk about, let's start with the Bible, because of your research, you came to a new realization about some things in the Bible. I did. Uh, one of the first things, Steve, that came out while I was doing the research for this book is that the Bible is not in the order in which the letters were written. The chapters are all out of order chronologically. If you read, just say a statement from Paul or one of Paul's letters, because that's basically what preachers preach from Paul's letters. But you have to understand when he was reading, writing his letters, there was a growing period in Paul. So what he thought 10 years later, 
it's different in his writings. Do, do you under, does that make sense to you at all? Sure. Well, he was learning himself. Because he was, obviously, he was, he was a convert. He, be, he was a convert to Christianity. Exactly. And when he first started out writing his letters, he was actually writing in opposition to what Jesus was teaching. And one prime example of that is when he would write, anybody that don't, don't think like us, you withdraw yourself from them. You know, anybody that don't follow after us. But that's really not what Jesus taught. Because Jesus taught that I'm not here. Those that are not sick, they don't need a physician. So you go after those that are lost. But Paul is teaching you shun those people. And the way I look at church people today is that that is the way they treat people. If you don't agree with them or if your views are different from theirs, they will shun you. They don't want to have anything to do with you as opposed to, you know, let, let's see what we do agree on and let's work together on that. You talk about being addicted to church. Now, that, in some ways, you would think, well, that is a good thing, but you see it from a little different angle. I do, because when you're addicted to church, um, the church that, the, that they're addicted to is just a building. It would be a wonderful thing if they were addicted to the true and the living church of God in Christ, which is individuals, you know, loving your brother, loving your neighbor. But they're addicted to the church as in the building. They treat the building better than they treat people. And you can see it on any given Sunday, the way they, when they're act, they act or behave one way inside, and immediately upon exiting, you can see how they treat you. They probably won't even let you out of the parking lot. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's the way they treat the building as opposed to the way they treat individuals. So, so there's a big difference between churchgoers and Christians. Th- there is a big difference. Uh, the churchgoers... I refer to them as like a social club, and it's a place where they go to mingle, you know, with other social club members, <laughs> you know. But And that's where they go to feel good about themselves, and they think once they've done that, their service to God is over. So when they leave there, they've already fulfilled their worship. They don't have to do anything else, and that's not necessarily the, the truth. Now, we've touched on this uh, a little already, but you claim that there is a spirit of greed in the church today. And it is rampant, uh, and it's, it's a spirit of greed, and it is rampant, and, and it's just growing worse and worse. It's just it's getting worse because everything now costs. But, but think about this. Look, Steve, consider what they do in the churches. They sell their books and tapes and CDs, and they promote the, uh, events and stuff. They do all of that inside of the church. But if you recall a passage of Scripture in the Bible when they were buying and selling in the church, that is what infuriated Jesus. That is when he walked into the temple and he started turning over the tables where they were doing all of that inside of the church. And it's just amazing to me that the same thing that infuriated Jesus back then is the same thing they're doing now with no regard to. How has that changed then? How, do, how, how could we change that as Christians? Okay, it's like, um, it's, it's going to be a long journey to change what has happened. Um, the church, I believe, is what, what the devil uses <laughs> to keep people in an infancy state. It, as long as you're going there to be taught and you're still learning, I call it ever learning, it's like you never 
graduate. When, Steve, is the graduation? Some people say never. You never graduate. And and my thought is, really? Seriously? You never graduate? (laughs) Never? So you're going to forever be in a learning stage, which means you're going to forever be in an infancy stage, and you're never going to be able to be used greatly by God in his kingdom until you graduate and actually start doing the work of the kingdom. As you say, it's one thing to go to church on Sundays and hear all the great truths and feel the spirit and, and just feel the company of, of friends and, and in the faith. But it's another thing to go out Monday and see somebody in need and then respond. Exactly. And you, I noticed this on Monday mornings, too. Because sometimes I can walk in the building as a high-rise elevator on Monday mornings, and we walk in there, and people will get on the elevator, and they'll see you coming, and they'll let the elevator door just close in your face. And and the first thing that comes to my mind is, and I know you were at church on yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just the little things that that you do like that. The Bible said it's the small foxes that that, that, fall the vines or something to that effect. It's the little things that you do. If, Steve, we can get people to look at other individuals and see Christ in them, no matter what color, creed, whatever nationality, it doesn't matter. If you can look at another individual and you see Christ in them, you would treat that person different. It wouldn't be so easy for you to mistreat someone that you could see Christ in. What advice would you give to people who maybe have a feeling that the church they're going to or the minister they're following really doesn't isn't looking out for their best interests, is really looking out for his own interests. You know, many of them, Steve, they don't feel that way because as I travel and talk to people, well, I get uh, the idea that, oh, well, not my church. My church is different. <laughs> That's what everybody, everybody's church is different. They can see it in everybody else's church, but not theirs. And, and I like to tell them, no, it's all of them, all of them, that especially still take a tithe or collect a tithe, those are, um, that's just a, a, I call them false prophets because, of course, a tithe is no longer required for New Testament saints. So any minister that still extracts a tithe from his congregation is a false prophet. And I do know that's a big pill to swallow, but it is truth without the lump. What do you mean by the spiritually retarded? The spiritually retarded. You did read the book, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> spiritually retarded is, I, I refer to those that keep doing the same thing over and over again, even though uh, they know they're, they're going to get the same results, but they're expecting different results, and it's just not going to happen. I call that being spiritually retarded. So if God is telling you just straightforwardly, I don't dwell in temples made by hands, but you keep going to the temples thinking you're going to hear a word from God. Well, the man already said he don't dwell there. <laughs> so why are you there? It's just, you know, it just makes sense to me that if I'm now considered the temple of God, then why do I have to go to a building in order to hear from God? He lives inside of me. I should be able to go, like the Bible tells you, don't be like those uh, 
about Pharisees and Sadducees because when they pray, Steve, they love to go into the tempers and they love to be seen of men and they do these long prayers. He said, but not you, sweetheart. When you pray, I want you to go into your secret closet and talk to me. And when you talk to me secretly, I will reward you openly. But what the spiritually retarded do, they want to go to the building where everybody can see them and they want to stand in these long lines and they want to cry out to God. I mean, you see where I'm going? Yes. When when he's already told you what to do when you want to get get close to him, but they, so it's like that's why I say that's just the spiritual retardation that you you keep doing what he's not wanting you to do, but you're thinking it's going to bring you some different results. It's important to go to church on Sunday, but it's most important of what you do every single day, individually, personally, with your relationship with God. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that, that it's important to go to church on Sunday because you, Steve, are the church. And if you only go on Sunday, then what about Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday? <laughs> so so it's like you want to put God in a building on Sunday and you want to go and see him, but He's with you can't lock him up. It's a spirit. You can't lock a spirit up in a building and pick one day out of the week. If you're going to worship God, you have to worship him in spirit and in truth. And it's not just a weekly ritual. It's a daily life motivational event. We have time enough for one more question. Kay, what do you mean by amazing disgrace? Amazing disgrace. Oh, my goodness. That is what is going on behind the pulpit when you have ministers who are molesting children or sleeping with the women in the minister in the in the congregation. Um, it, it's just very disgraceful. That chapter you would actually have to uh, the listeners will have to read it to understand what amazing disgrace is. Um, I can't even go into it in this interview because it would take just too much time, but there's just so much disgrace going on, and it's going on in the name of the Lord, and that's what's so disgraceful. Okay, how do we get your book? You can uh, actually, you can go to howmuchdoesgodcost.com and, or your own website. It is a website. How much does God cost? And it's just a good question to ask. How much does God cost? You know, and when you consider that, and, and then you look at what what's written there, then you can kind of start, um, I guess, addressing some answers within yourself because this, Steve, is going to have to come from within. You're going to have to really do some soul searching from within to try to understand what's coming out of this book. Hey, we appreciate very much you being on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, and I am so sorry that my words get twisted. I'm just trying to explain it, and sometimes it's so deep, it's just difficult to explain in such a small amount of time. Well, you so, did but great. I appreciate you. We really you. enjoyed you sharing your philosophy, your wisdom, your faith. You are just a portion. <laughs> There's <laughs> so a, much more. That's just right. A portion. Well, that was Kay Quinn. She is the author of her book. How much does God cost?